I'm Michael Hainsworth. We're more than 100 days into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and the economic fallout is clear. Rampant inflation, fueled in part by skyrocketing fuel prices, dragging much of the world into stagflation territory. But another casualty may be climate change. How does Canada manage both energy and environmental security? That's the issue raised by RBC Economics in its latest report titled The New Climate Bargain. It argues there is a path forward to keeping Canada on track with its climate change goals. For insight, we turn to three of Canada's sharpest minds on the topic. Yeah, hi, my name is Colin Goldman. I'm an economist with RBC Economics and Thought Leadership. My name is Jan Gorski. I'm the Program Director for Oil and Gas at the Pemina Institute. I'm Charles Deland, Associate Director for Research at the CDL Institute, focusing on energy policy. Goldman's report asks three critical questions and we'll address each of them here. We begin with question one. Should Canada and the U.S. raise production significantly in the short term to cool prices? Why don't I take just a step back and say, I think the way we view this issue is that, you know, 12 months ago, Canada had a significant challenge in planning out the decarbonization of Canada's oil and gas sector. Um, and now there's an added layer of complexity, which is there's there's a major energy crisis going on globally. Um, really, you know, the fundament of that being the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. So to answer your question more directly, we see a role for Canadian and U.S. oil production to respond to the disruption of supply, you know, that is ongoing in the global markets um, as the world responds to that invasion. But the challenge, I think, for Canada and, and in fact, the U.S. as well, is really to do that in a way that doesn't jeopardize our future climate targets, which which are really, we see, um, a, a critical part of the next decade, two decades of, of energy policy in Canada. What our research showed, um, and, and it's really building on a body of work we've done over the last couple of years, um, is that oil and gas are, are going to remain critical parts of our energy needs for, for you know, a significant period of time forward. And so we need a strategy for how to manage towards those two goals. We find, you know, in the report, in the research that Canada itself can boost oil and gas exports to the U.S. by as much as 500,000 barrels a day uh, with a combination of oil sands and conventional oil production to help alleviate that supply constraint. But recognizing that oil demand is likely to fall over the coming years, due to technological advances, and in particular as, as EVs take over road transportation in the personal segment, there's going to need to be this strategy of, of how Canadian producers compete to provide that oil economically and what that means for emissions, uh, we see as really critical parts of Canada's energy strategy as well. I would agree with Colin that the most important thing for us um, is to ensure that any kind of short-term action is balanced with... Um, with a long-term trend, which as Colin said, the long-term trend is that we're likely to see a declining demand for oil. And as we try and figure out how to meet these short-term needs, um, we also need to look at how the, the countries in Europe are responding to the current crisis. So in the short term, there's this need um, for energy, but there's actually, what we're seeing is that um, they're looking to accelerate action to get off of fossil fuels in the medium term. So just yesterday, um, I saw a news clip about a proposal in the EU that all new buildings should have solar panels installed on them. So it just gives you a sense of the scale and the pace of this transition. And so it's really important that we take into mind the fact that 
action on climate is very likely to accelerate in the midterm. And any action we take in the short term really has to balance um, the long term trends that we're seeing here. Charles? So generally speaking, I would say that uh, you know prices are are indicating there is a, a lot of demand and and not as much supply. I mean, not just to state the obvious. So whether Canada or the U.S. should increase uh, oil and and gas production is is the market saying yes we should now can we in the short term it's a it's tougher because there's supply and elasticity takes a lot of demand or sorry a lot of investment rather and we have uh, constraints on um, export capability uh, and uh, and it's not something you can just just turn on quickly is that constraint on exportability one of the biggest issues that we are facing here in Canada as we try to make up for the, what, 3 million barrels per day that are shut in from Russia? I don't know in the short term. It's more a long-term view. I know, you know companies, these, these take years, these investments. So it's stuff that was set in place, you know, four, five, six years ago that would, was coming on now. So, I mean... If people think that there's going to be a long-term demand and there's going to be future ways to get the product to market, then that's when you see investment happening now. And, but we're not really actually seeing that uh, very much. We're seeing companies um, reaping cash flows uh, and returning returns to shareholders. Whereas there's been so much talk about the need to build additional pipelines, get the material to the markets that it needs to, uh, Colin, that feels more like a long-tail solution to this problem. Yeah, so I think, you know, to Charles's point, oil companies are reacting to the market signals they're seeing. And, and you know, when you seasonally adjust the data on drilling rigs, we do see, you know, some pickup in activity relative to a couple of years prior. And that's really, you know, it's hard to see through that data because of spring breakup. Um, and, and those are challenges in sort of monitoring really what's actually going on. But I think I would say in, in the near term, we're sort of starting to see some of these price signals leading to activity. But I think... To the, the pipeline and, and egress question, it's really this, this issue I focused on early on in the report, which is just where is oil demand and what are the economics of producing the oil to meet that demand going to be in 2040 and 2050? And so the report that we wrote really focused on those questions of how much is it going to de- cost to decarbonize oil sands production? What are the required investments? What are the technologies we're taking up? And in the long term, there's a lot of uncertainties yet to be kind of litigated through the industry's investments in these technologies, whether that be carbon capture and storage or, you know, in terms of getting product to market via um, transportation solutions like pipelines, those challenges are still sort of starting to be addressed now. And if there is going to be significant investment, we need to make sure that there's an economic case for the production that that investment is going to support. So I think the pipelines issue is, is, you know, important in the long term, as you say, but, but we really need to be focused on the economics of the underlying production before we worry about how we're getting that stuff to market. Are consumers focused on the underlying economics of it all? Because zero emissions vehicles were just 5.6% of Canadian light vehicle registrations in 2021, uh, according to your report, Colin. People don't seem to be interested in getting rid of their gas guzzlers anytime soon. Uh, Jan, what do you think that means as far as that consumer-oriented demand? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Well, I I mean, I, I would say that the trend is pointing in the right direction. We're seeing year to year that there's the sales of electric vehicles are really increasing and they're they're kind of at the bottom of that exponential curve. So I think right now, globally, we're at about 
13% of sales, correct me if I'm wrong there, Colin. And um, just yesterday, another you know fact is that um, Chevrolet Inc. reduced the price of their EV, the Bolt, by $6,000. So we're seeing costs are coming down. We're seeing that year over year, the growth in car sales, in, in passenger vehicles, is coming from EVs. It's not coming from gas cars. So I think we are headed in, in the right direction and that will have a, it'll start to have an impact on oil demand sooner than we think. Colin, you've written, you know, that Ottawa is mandating at least 60% of all new light duty uh, zero emissions vehicles by 2030. But because there's that sort of 11 year lag, you know, Canadians tend to hold on to their cars that even by 2030, if four out of five cars on the road are still going to be internal combustion engine vehicles. And you write that there are already signs that the government resolve is weakening in places like Germany, California, even here in British Columbia, through oh, subsidies to offset high gas and power prices. So how does higher output square with their ambitious emissions reduction plans? That's a big question you put in this report. Yeah. So I think the way we see it is if we're going to raise production in the near term to meet some of these supply challenges that we're seeing as Russian production comes offline, there needs to be a commensurate investment in the decarbonization technologies that are going to help us reduce the, you know, could be as many as 9 million extra tons of CO2 um, or, or I guess I should be more specific, greenhouse gases, including methane, that we're adding to the atmosphere because of that increase in production. And, you know, Jan has put out some really interesting work on, on the technological pathways for the oil and gas sector and showed that there are significant technologies we can take up, especially um, to cut methane emissions from the sector that will help offset some of this rising production profile. So in the short term, the story, I think, in our view is there are levers we can pull in the sector, make investments that, that green or reduce emissions in the production of oil and gas in the near term. But in the long term, to, to Jan's point, there there is indication that the world is moving away from, you know, at least gasoline demand. Where I think there's less clarity is, is where we're going to land on oil demand for other uses, um, whether that be in transition for things like heavy-duty freight transport or air travel, um, or in the long term, what non-combustion uses for oil are going to look like. And so that's something we focused on in the report is that in the short term, we can do some of this trade-off analysis and talk about raising some production and making some additional investments, encouraging uptake of EVs domestically and building out EV infrastructure. But in the long term, we really need to have view of, of where the puck is going, you know, skating to that point to, to use a bit of a you know, cliche statement in Canadian public policy now, but understanding, you know, what our market is in 2035, 2040 and 2050. And I think the way we see that key challenge is that Canada can't, you know, continue to just supply a barrel into an international market because we have high costs and we have high decarbonization costs. So when our oil production needs to be net zero aligned, we're going to have to make significant investments. And how do we ensure those investments pay off? Well, it's I think we view it as taking an energy strategy approach rather than you know supporting just additional production. That energy strategy needs to be in coordination with our allies, in coordination with the U.S., our main offtake market, and recognizing that there are reasons why we might want Canadian oil production in the future um, that, that include things like stability and geopolitics, as well as you know, price, location, and all these other things that have traditionally been um, worked into the market framework around oil and gas in North America. I think companies are really well placed to start making these investments to reduce emissions. We have these short-term opportunities, as Colin mentioned. Methane is one of them. 
but we also have a lot of leadership on carbon capture and storage in Alberta that companies are, are well placed to build off of. And the other big opportunity is electrifying some of the engines out there. So what we're seeing now is that uh, in 2021 and in 2022, companies are seeing record profits because of really high oil prices and several other factors. So they're in a really good position right now to invest those revenues into uh, reducing emissions. So far, most of what we're seeing is that those revenues are going into share buybacks and dividends. But I think what we need to start seeing is more commitments to for, for reducing emissions, both the short-term actions and the longer-term projects, which will take some time to build. And so companies need to start uh, building those now. You know, we've seen the OSENS pathway, Net Zero Pathway Alliance, come out with this plan for how they're going to achieve net zero, but we haven't seen the commitment to make the investments to achieve those plans yet. I think just to follow on one comment from Colin, I think I would agree that the Canadian industry, that's the, you know, they're looking 10, 20, 30 years out and they see, is there a role for us? Uh, and I think they do. I think one thing that's maybe not well known, we, you know, it's, the industry is very, is highly competitive from a cost perspective. So it, it's going to be around for a long time. Now, the, the question is the cost to make sure that those barrels are decarbonized is, is not too onerous to be able for us to compete. Colin, the, the third critical question that your report brings up is if governments fail to balance climate action and energy security, will high energy costs and emissions erode public trust? So, I mean, I think that is a really critical question here. And I think it goes to Jan's point about industry, you know, taking some of these high profit periods and making investments in decarbonization. And I think the same goes for government. Um, you know, we've seen some estimates for royalties flowing into the Western provinces being at, at you know, extremely high levels. And the same goes for, for federal revenues um, from tax take from this economic activity. And I think the government needs to, you know, both ensure that it's it's seeking energy security in the near term and allowing, you know, writing policies that allow for some of this production um, response to high prices and also making the investments it needs to make in the long-term decarbonization strategy. And so, I mean, to put a finer point on it, our report sort of outlines um, how much it might cost to start really deeply cutting emissions from the oil sands sector by 2030. We think it could be something like 45 to $65 billion in capital spending in the next, you know, sort of six-ish years. That's a lot of money. Um, but to Jan's point, these companies are, are generating record profits. The challenge, I think, is in getting, you know, everybody at the table to, to sort of set out, you know, the investment needed, the financing needed from the financial sector, regulation changes, policy changes at the federal and provincial levels that are going to let that investment happen smoothly. These projects are extremely complicated, both from an engineering and financing perspective, and they require quite a lot of support through, you know, permitting and regulatory and environmental assessment and all these sorts of moving pieces of getting these projects done. So something we sort of talk about in the paper is using, you know, this new Canada Growth Fund, which is a federal policy to sort of spur investment in this sector. But I think what's really critical about that is having this sort of whole of country view of who the players are that need to be involved and ensuring that the right conversations are happening today because this build out is going to happen over the next decade, 15 years. 
So kind of laying the pieces today, recognizing that, that, you know, in the near term, there's this cost of energy challenge and not losing sight of the long-term strategy. We, we think that's kind of key. And, and how you do that in our minds is by starting these conversations today and saying, okay, you know, we can drill more, we can provide more energy, we can loosen the sort of supply constraints internationally to a degree, but we also need to be, you know, looking forward 30 years. And, and I think that's where you get that trade-off in the public, you know, discourse around energy that leaves room for both assessing current energy needs and future decarbonization, current decarbonization goals. You know, Jan, we've talked a couple of times here about the fact that the energy industry right now is plowing all of this back into share buybacks um, and, and things of that nature instead of boosting production because they don't feel the need to. Uh, how do we convince this industry to redirect that kind of cash, not just to new production, but also to the necessary systems to deal with the carbon capture component to the job at hand? Yeah, that's a great question. And part of the, the answer of unlocking some of those investments in carbon capture and the other kinds of technologies that we'll need to reduce emissions in the oil sands is having the right policy in place. And so we're seeing the government take steps in that direction. They've denounced a, a carbon capture and tax credit. Um, they're currently working on uh, the design of this oil and gas emissions cap which I think will provide a kind of a trajectory for the oil and gas sector, which, which will signal the direction that they need to go and, and provide enough certainty for them to start making those investments. So it's really about getting some of these foundational policy pieces in place. Charles, how do we do that? How do we convince Alberta to engage in these types of public policy discussions when, quite frankly, not a lot of love has been lost between the Trudeau government, whether it be Trudeau one or two, and the province of Alberta. I would separate sometimes the the political level from the the companies. You know, the industry is is certainly engaged a lot with the federal government uh, on on these topics and key to do so. There's lots of conversations I know back and forth, uh, and I think they're very productive. Uh, and you know, the Pathways Group is one on the oil sands where they're they're working with all levels of government. Uh, to to address these these things, they realize it's not a, a short term uh, uh, political issue. These are long term investments and long term global themes that will affect the, affect their business. Um, so you can see I kind of skirted your question. I I don't really know the answer on the political side, uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway the the companies and you mentioned cash flows. I'll just come back to that. Yes, they're they're making a lot of money right now in the short term, but again, but it's a very cyclical business and you don't want to make policy based on short terms, ups and downs uh, of, of a certain industry. So the, the stability in the long-term view is important. And I think part of the reason that the companies aren't making huge cash investments, although they're they're not insignificant right now, is just the uncertainty. They want to make sure this the investments they're making are actually going to come to fruition and they're they're making the right investments uh, for their businesses uh, because they are going to be substantial further to, to Collins you know key question about the issue of the erosion of public trust you know if governments fail to balance climate action and energy security we have the risk of that erosion how much of that may be tied to being seen as in as addressing inflation you know we're seeing prices at the pumps north of $2, and there doesn't seem to be any indication that it's going back down anytime soon. 
of course, oil is a global market. Uh, it, there's there's only so much Canada can do to control inflation or the commodity price inflation. That was this goes for all commodities. But does the public understand that? Uh, well, I mean, again, sometimes people who, who perhaps know better uh, would inflame that a little bit more and they, they talk more about uh, the government and their lack of their control. So I think, no, they don't understand as well as they ought to. Uh, but, you know, groups like ours, we keep talking about the, the impacts of inflation and the sources of inflation, uh, which are buried. Yeah. One point I want to make is, you know, to me, it's an open question of how much, uh, how much power do Canada and the U S actually have over, um, addressing some of the concerns because I mean, as as Charles said, um, oil is a global market and it, it's subject to a lot of geopolitical forces. And part of the reason why we have such high oil prices, you know, one is the fact that we have this crisis, but also the response to that crisis isn't necessarily what we're expecting. So the response of countries like Saudi Arabia with their oil production isn't what we might expect to see. You know, they're really holding off on boosting production. So to me, there's this open question of how much control and power do Canada and the U.S. actually have to uh, address the, the global supply issues? That kind of highlights nicely, you know, Charles' point on uncertainty. You know, these companies are making investment decisions, whether that be in short-term supply or carbon capture technology or decarbonization, against a very uncertain backdrop. First, in, in the near term, you know, what will the oil price be three months out if Saudi Arabia moves differently than they have been? But also, you know, on, on CCS, um, really focused on what the long-term oil price is going to be, which, you know, you can, you can draw a chart across various long-term forecasts and get very different answer um, to that question. And so I think the, the challenge for Canada as it stands in, in solving near-term and long-term is trying to resolve some of that uncertainty as it can. And, you know, Jan pointed to the, the CCUS tax credit. That's going to help the financial side of these projects get, you know, closer to profitable um, status for the companies. But I think there's, there's a nuance there that needs to be said, which is in the long-term, because of the uncertainty of the oil price, we don't know what a break-even for, you know, Alberta oil or BC gas is going to be um, post CCS investment and, and what the market price for that commodity is going to be long term. So we need to take a deliberate approach to deploying these decarbonization solutions, just like we need to be deliberate in sort of allowing for production increase in the short term um, in order to make sure that there, there is, a, you know, a market into which to sell that commodity and, and that it can be sold at a profitable level over indexing, you know, on very costly engineering solutions um, for an energy system that that is undergoing rapid transformation is is a really um, I think dangerous game to be playing. We got to be careful about how we do this. I think is the point I'm trying to make. I just came back from Germany, and Europeans are accustomed to paying a remarkable price at the pump to fill up their tanks. I was talking just my 16 year old daughter, who's about to learn how to drive, about this sort of North American perception about the cost uh, of driving. And so I suppose that the dinner party question for each of you is, is $2 the new floor for gas prices? <laughs> uh, I think if I knew that, maybe I wouldn't be on this podcast. I'd be sipping a margarita on the beach. Um, <laughs> I think there is a real question here about, in the long term, what the right price for fossil fuels is in the context of, you know, a global decarbonization push. 
And I think the history of, of higher pump prices in Europe are, are in part a legacy of the 1970s oil price shock. Prices, you know, not coming down, taxes at the pump rising to offset, um, you know, and, and keep some of those sort of structural changes. And, and high fossil fuel prices going forward, whether that be gasoline at the pump or natural gas, you know, prices at Henry Hub are quite high now, too. Um, those will start to enforce consumer behavioral changes. Anecdotally, you know, I have friends asking me, you know, hey, you drive this plug-in hybrid, how good is it on gas? And should maybe that be my next car? Or thinking about, you know, maybe even more aggressively changing their car already because of the sort of acute near-term price pressure. So I do think what we're going to start seeing is higher energy costs filtering through to consumer changes. And as there's availability of decarbonization options, if that's EVs in North America or heat pumps in Europe for their houses, people are going to be taking these technologies up. And so I, I think to Jan's point, this is going to be a catalyst event for consumers taking more, you know, um, let's call them electrical solutions. And the policy environment is going to need to support that. So solving that very challenging problem is is a policy question. But the dinner table response to that is, I don't know what the, the energy price is going to be, but I can tell you how to avoid it. And it's buying an EV or a heat pump rather than the fossil fuel alternative. Yeah, I would agree with Colin. You know, the I think what we're going to start seeing on the consumer side is a trend away from using fossil fuels in cars and heating. And there's a role for government to play in helping that, as we're seeing in Europe. I think um, we need to keep heading down this road of, of helping consumers make those choices. We've seen the Canadian government put in a, a or commit to putting in an EV mandate, and that's a step in the right direction. Um, and we need to do the same on the the building side to help customers install heat pumps. And that is going to help with some of these uh, energy concerns in the long term, help balance that volatility going forward. And the other part of that equation is that, you know, alongside federal policy, you know, as you brought up before, we need the provinces to, to play ball. We need them to step up and and cooperate with the federal government to, to help row in the same direction. Charles, final word from you. Just to the point about the, the, the high prices, you know, the old uh, cliche is uh, the, the cure for high prices is high prices because you see a supply and a demand response. Um, on fossil fuels particularly, it all depends on the alternatives, of course. Um, you know, if, if electricity is, is very expensive, then there's not going to be a big shift to electrification. So, you know, the technology and governments also need to keep that in mind and not only the current price of electricity but the expected the the future uh, price and volatility people people are always comparing their options uh, and I mean there's a huge embedded fossil fuel infrastructure of course is built up over a hundred years I was in uh, South America earlier this year I, I did not see a single EV on the roads in some of the countries uh, and lots of new uh, ice cars, uh, internal combustion engine cars. So maybe we see things differently in Canada, but this is a, a global issue. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time and insight here today. Colin Goldman is an economist with RBC Economics and Thought Leadership. Thanks. Jan Gorski is the Program Director for Oil and Gas at the Pembina Institute. Thank you, Michael. And Charles DeLand is the Associate Director for Research, focusing on energy policy at the C.D. Howe Institute. Thank you. Still to come from the C.D. Howe Institute, an in-person event at the Mount Royal Club in Montreal, Quebec as the power source for green electricity, with Ambassador David Cohen, 
Dominique Deschain, Associate Deputy Minister for Energy and Natural Resources, Quebec, and Gary Sutherland of Hydro-Quebec. That's June 15th. And on the 17th, a webinar titled Shred the Shred Credit? Supporting R&D and Commercialization in Canada with Robert Aslan of the Business Council of Canada, Dr. John Lester of the University of Calgary, and Stephen Lopez, a partner of Global Investment and Innovation Incentives at Deloitte. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.